Welcome to Recovery Mic Drop, where we're dropping the mic on addiction and recovery. We are two women who have been through the highs and lows of addiction and have came out on the other side with a wealth of experience, strength, and hope. We are here to share our stories along with those of other amazing people in recovery and offer a fresh perspective on what it means to live a sober life. So grab a seat, turn up the volume, and get ready for some raw, unfiltered, and inspiring conversation. Trigger warning, we will be discussing uncomfortable topics and using strong language without hesitation. Hi, I'm Heather. I'm Bridget. Heather, what is the biggest lie you have ever told yourself? There's a lot. Um, Probably the biggest uh, is that I'm a good person. In the madness, you know, I would say I was a good person because I did some, I don't know, some kind act or deed, but that it was always for personal gain. Right. So it was a lie. Or that I'm not the problem, everyone else is. Or the drugs are the problem. That's not true either because I would get sober and still be a horrible person. <laughs> so I've learned that over and over again. What about you? I think mine is that I could quit using if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. I always thought I enjoyed getting high and destroying my life for some reason. I thought if this is how I want to live. And if I want to live different, I can and I will. So anytime friends that were concerned, family members that were concerned would come to me, that's exactly what I would say. But I was ignoring the fact that one time I had court, told myself I'd stop using so I'd be able to pass a drug screen at court. And I was unable to do that. I remember I remember getting pregnant one time and told myself that I was going to quit tomorrow and tomorrow never came. I obviously had a problem and was lying to myself about that problem. Right. It's it's easy to get stuck in that cycle. Um, so today we're talking about step one, honesty and acceptance, admitting we were powerless over, and you can insert anything here. You can insert drugs, alcohol, gambling, sex, food, shopping. It doesn't matter anything that causes you to have a mental obsession and you just continue doing it regardless of what's going on in your life. So it's admitting we were powerless over drugs or alcohol, and our lives had become unmanageable. So addiction is a disease that affects your brain, body, and spirit. You feel helpless, and you feel hopeless, and you feel alone. That's why this step is so important, because the first step to recovery is to acknowledge that you have a problem. And it's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of honesty and courage. And it's really your first step to freedom. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's the first step to freedom. And how do, you have to do that by admitting to yourself that something is seriously wrong in your life. You've created these messes. Things aren't going how they're supposed to. Or, you know, you just keep harming yourself and other people around you. You know, you have to mm-hmm. get completely rigorously honest with yourself about your addiction and the powerlessness and unmanageability. And that's hard to do. It requires you to face the reality of your situation, to let go of all the denial. And that is hard to do when it's the only thing that's kept you going. (laughs) You know, it's very hard to do. But it is step one is the foundation of all positive change. It helps you to break the cycle and to open ourselves up to a different way of living. This was actually the hardest step for me yeah. personally because um, my sponsor had gave me top character defects of mine and my top two were dishonesty and delusional. So that was perfect. Right. Two issues <laughs> in one. And um, I just remember doing step work and, you know, when I was writing down my resentments, um, I was writing down that everybody else was the problem. And I genuinely believed that. I was so delusional 
that I believe my own lies. And that is Mm -hmm. the scariest place to be. Step one is an invitation to let go of the delusion, the dishonesty, and embrace the power of surrender. The power of surrender. I really like that. And there is a lot of power in surrender. I didn't understand that in the beginning, but I've learned that that is very true. Um, So for me to accept that I had a problem, I had to be beaten practically to death by my powerlessness and unmanageability. And I mean just, you know, homeless, no job, no car, no one that I loved or loved me was in my life any longer. I was just, you know, surrounded by people just like me doing the stuff that I was doing. I had no hope, no love for myself or anyone else. I was trying to die as fast as I could, and I didn't understand why it wasn't happening. But, um, you know, I had earlier in my addiction, before I had lost everything, I was losing things, but I hadn't lost everything yet. Um, I was living in Brooklyn, New York, and my boyfriend at the time, he and I, we'd always been a mess. But anyway, we were um, making a written budget on our bills, you know, like rent, car payment, insurance. And then we had a category called other. And I can remember writing this down on a piece of paper like it was yesterday. Other stood for heroin. And it was about 65% of our budget. And, you know, eventually it would go to be 80%. And then eventually we would lose everything and have to leave New York. And you know, that's just an example. <laughs> I can't believe you wrote a budget. Oh, uh, I, I can remember writing it because I needed it to live. It was so essential to me getting through life that I had to write a freaking budget. You know what I mean? That, <laughs> if that's not powerlessness and unmanageability, I don't know what it is, but it's crazy. But I thought, In my mind, that was rational. Hey, I'm doing the responsible thing. I'm trying to pay my bills and be strung out on heroin. And then, you know, anyone in addiction knows every time you, you know, draw a line in the sand, you cross it, you know. Um, So that was just the beginning of things getting really, really bad. Fast forward many years later, I'm back in West Virginia. I'm homeless. I have no one in my life. Um, You know, I'm just lost and alone and miserable. And, um... I remember the last time I was arrested. I was in, it was my house, but it was trashed. It was a house that when my father died, he left it to me. And uh, the ATF was there. They came because they were looking for someone else. And they beat on my door. And I remember I just opened the door and I walked out and I was ready to go. Of course, I was the only one with a warrant. So they took me and no one else. (laughs) But... I felt so relieved because I'm like, okay, this, this is my escape. This is my chance. I can't do this anymore. This, this has to be it for me. This has to work. I got to get out of here, you know, and um, thank God I was sent to a treatment center and, you know, the rest is history. But I remember feeling relief that something, God was breaking the cycle for me because I couldn't do it myself. And all I had to do was surrender and ask. And that's, I don't know. When I think about it, it makes me choke up because I remember with those handcuffs on, I had never felt freer. It's crazy that you mentioned that because my powerlessness and when I actually came to accept that I had a problem and I was powerless, powerless over my addiction, I was sitting in a jail cell. And I never felt more free. I never felt more at peace, you know, because when I got arrested, I was put in the hole for a couple months by myself coming off drugs. And all I could do was pray and ask for help. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, 
it was the greatest spiritual awakening I've ever experienced in my life. And I was able to accept that I had a problem and become aware that every decision I made in my life was because of me. And I liked when you said that, you know, every time we draw a line in the sand, we end up crossing mm-hmm. it. I remember, you know, in the beginning of my addiction, I tried to be a good person or lied to myself to be a good person. Who knows? I was a delusional mess. But I do remember the specific moment because it just gets worse. It never gets better. It always gets worse. So I remember it was getting worse. And then guess what? I'm surrounding myself with worse people. And I remember I just kept getting, you know, robbed, um, all the bad things that happen in addiction. I remember flipping the switch in my head that I am done playing nice. And I mm. became the biggest piece of shit that mm. I could have became. And I remember that exact moment like it was yesterday. I was there. I was already the biggest piece of shit I could be. <clears throat> but I would convince myself. And it really, that is really kind of how it is out there, is that you got to get over on someone else before they get over on you. So, you know, you just become hard and cold. And it's survival. It's fight or flight, man. It's like a horrible place to be in. Um, I just remember not knowing any good in the world. So that's how I lived. That's how I acted. I remember a group of friends of mine at the end of my addiction, we would just constantly get one over on each other and pretend that it didn't happen. We just accepted that not only were we pieces of shit, but everybody, you know, the whole group was. And I just can't believe, you know, we allowed ourselves to be in those situations. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show the powerlessness and the unmanageability. I remember looking around and like literally hating everyone that was around me. But did they have what I needed at that time? So we were best friends if you did, you know, and vice versa. That's just how it was. No relationships were real. Nothing was real. It was just everybody out for themselves. But you got to fake it. You know what I mean? In the moment. But you would stab that person in the back two seconds later. It's, it's just horrible. Yeah, and it seemed like all I ever had was a bag and a boyfriend. Because then if I didn't have the dope, I had the boyfriend to feed my validation or whatever it is. And then vice versa. I remember um, my last boyfriend breaking up with me, but I was just, I didn't care because I had that dope on me. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have that dope, I probably would have freaked out. Oh, yeah. Then he's the love of your life. Right. Yeah. And these are the things you have to come to terms with when you work step one. You have to accept who you are and what you're doing. And powerlessness And accepting powerlessness and unmanageability in your life can be very difficult. For me, it was the most difficult part of my recovery journey because at the time I was 21 trying to get sober and everybody around me in treatment was 10 plus years older than me. And I thought, well, they had the chance to live in addiction and I didn't get to experience it because again, I didn't have that gift of desperation. So instead of relating, I was pointing out what I wasn't or what I hadn't done. Instead of looking at my life and my experience and the unmanageability and powerlessness that showed in my experience. And powerlessness and unmanageability can look different for a lot of people. And some examples, you know, patterns of negative consequences, failed attempts to control or moderate your using or drinking, escalation or progression of the problem in your using, the denial and rationalizing things. You can't keep a job. Um, You know, everyone that you care about has to distance themselves from you. You'll find yourself alone. Breaking commitments. Homelessness. <laughs> and because even at, at being homeless, I, you know what I mean? I wasn't accepting anything. I was just running. 
I wasn't homeless because I had a boyfriend's couch to sleep on or I had a friend's couch to sleep on. I forget about the time that when I was living at my mom's house and she kicked me out, I had nowhere to go. I was sleeping in a baseball dugout. Mm, Yeah. But I wasn't homeless. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. It's, It's insane the lies we tell ourselves. Absolutely. So what would you say are some reservations you had in early recovery? Oh, gosh. The list goes on (laughs) because I thought, you know, in early recovery, I thought that I had control over it all. So I thought if I could stay sober for a little bit, I could probably control it in the future, be a weekend drinker user. Um, I had the reservation that I was going to drink. I had the reservation that I was going to do shrooms to get closer to God. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I told myself so many things that I could, um, I had a reservation to just go hang out with the same people that I was hanging out with before. Yeah. I, uh, I just thought, you know, if I, if I do this and it doesn't work, then I'll just go back to the shit I was doing before. If, you know, I don't get my family back, then who cares? Then I'll just go back to doing what I'm doing. Um, if, if the steps didn't work, if I got really sick, I remember fantasizing in a rehab that I like broke my arm or something. So I'd get painkillers. That is how sick this shit is. That just brought a memory upon me. So <laughs> um, when I was in sitting in long-term treatment, I remember the mental obsession was so strong. And we trudged a mile to and from this class. <laughs> and I was trying to think of a way to use and not get caught. Because again, I was facing multiple, multiple felonies in prison time. So my idea was during the trudge, I was going to be all the way in the back. I was going to take off when no one was looking, go get high, beat my head against a brick wall and come back and say that I was kidnapped and drugged. (laughs) They would have still discharged you. They don't care. Absolutely. Uh, So the process of working step one, what are some things you kind of thought and felt when you were working step one? Well, first I want to say for me, working step one, I had to balance acceptance and change. Because in the beginning, I I like to contradict everything. I thought, okay, this step is about acceptance. Why can't I just accept who I am and move on? But I had to find that balance between changing as well, changing the negative behavior. But I struggled with not hitting rock bottom like a lot of other people had. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. have that gift of desperation. Um, it was hard for me to relate to a lot of things. But yet I had multiple felonies by 20 and was sentenced to long-term treatment. And I was there for a year. Like, obviously the decisions you have made have led you here, you know, and I had to get real freaking honest with myself. Mm. And that was the hardest part because I was delusional. But what I, once I did accept that, um, I did, I did feel free because people are like, you need to relate. And if you don't relate, leave it Mm. and just move on. And that's, that is something I don't know if I would be able to do if I hadn't hit a, a rock bottom. I'm sure it could go deeper if I wanted to test it. I think, well, not just, first of all, just want to tell you it doesn't get better. <laughs> okay. From someone who knows. So I was defeated in every sense of the word. So for me, step one was like, man, like unburdening myself. You know, I, uh, I got honest and I felt lighter. It was like, okay, so now I know what's wrong with me. And I'm not alone. So I can, I can build on this. Yeah. But you know, I had, it took me decades to get to that point. I'm like, that's pretty amazing that you, you know what I mean? Have come as far as you have and could get that honest with yourself at such a young age. 
I resent you for it. (laughs) Well, I kind of resent you, so it's all right. And I started to understand the uh, the mental obsession and the physical allergy as it was explained to me, which I had never heard before. It is so much, maybe not easier, but so much better when you can understand what's wrong with you versus just hands up, up in the air being like, somebody help me, I can't stop. You know, and it was such a such an eye opening experience. You said that you had never heard of the physical allergy or the mental obsession, and I didn't either. You know, so anyone who's experienced that mental obsession, it's like there's no other option and there will never be another option. I didn't think, you know, getting sober that that mental obsession would go away. And I didn't know what it was. I just thought that was a part of me. Yeah. And it's funny, too, because, you know, the story I told you guys about being in treatment And having the thought to pretend I was kidnapped and get drugged, I was mentally obsessing, but I had been sober for a few months. Oh, yeah. To a year. Like, Mm -hmm. it was a while because I was in jail previously, and I was still mentally obsessing. It wasn't, it was no longer a physical problem. It was a mental problem. Um, Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Come to find out, you know, I got to thinking before I even picked up drugs and alcohol, I still mentally obsessed in a way that I wasn't aware of because I was never satisfied. I was entitled and I was always seeking for something outside of myself, whether that be validation or eating or playing video games, watching TV. I was always, always seeking something other than my higher power. Yeah. Absolutely. At that point, I didn't really have a relationship with a higher power. I was praying because I was told that's what I should do. And I mean, I was willing to try. Yeah, that uh, that mental obsession just transfers to other things. In early recovery, it was food and I overate all the time. I gained a lot of weight in recovery, which I think is normal for a lot of people. But it's something I still struggle with somewhat today. You know, I've got a better handle on it than I did, but I have to be vigilant. Yeah, a lot of people struggle with the weight gain and early recovery. And I don't know if it's because we were starving ourselves, <laughs> wrecking our metabolism. But yeah, it's it's a huge thing. And I feel like it's a hard part um, because, you know, when I got sober, bam, gained 50 pounds. And yeah. then I got pregnant, bam, another 50 pounds. Yeah. And I was so insecure. And I had just worked on myself so much to learn to love myself again. And that was all fallen to pieces. And so it was another process of me having to work on it and not mentally obsess and actually learn to take care of myself in a manageable way. Yeah. And it's something I struggle with today. I think, you know, we could get into the whole issue of the expectations of women in society and what we're supposed to look like. I uh, I will struggle with my age or my body and all of it is just a distorted image of who I really am. And none of it is important, but I have to do that work and I have to connect to my higher power in order to to cope with it and to work through it. Yeah, I think for me today, it's more about not even how I look, but how how can I be more healthy and take care of myself? And it has evolved into that more now because I like myself more than I used to. You know, I love myself, but I still have bad days. So therefore, I want to be healthy. So I want to make healthier choices instead of just, you know, doing whatever it takes and harming myself in the process. Working step one today, what does that look like for you? Well, I still get those thoughts, you know, that uh, I'm not the same person. So maybe I could have a drink. So I have to work this step daily. I've tried that before. And every time I have a drink, then I go right to my drug of choice, no matter what. And I'm just not willing to test that theory because I, I have repeated the same patterns over and over again. And I don't know why I would think it would be any different now, honestly. 
You know, I was told to create a life that I don't want to escape from. And that's basically what I have. You know, I love my life. I love the people in it. I have no desire to give up anything that I have in my life. And I know that's what would happen because I have proven. So here's how I have to work. Step one, I have to get completely honest with myself that if I use, I will give up my self-love, my family, my only son, my self-respect, my dignity, my life. I will give it all away for the next one. And that's how I have to work. Step one. Yeah, that's really powerful because that is how serious it is. Mm -hmm. So what about you? Today, I have to be completely honest with myself. You know, I'm, I still have delusional tendencies and I will make things up in my head or I'll believe these things that I'm telling myself. So working it today, I have to speak about it. I have to talk mm-hmm. to my support system. I have to get it out of my head and then it's not as serious. And then yeah. people can bring me back to reality because I'm still a delusional mess at times. And that is important. Yeah, that's why in early recovery, you keep hearing support network because it is so important. One little thought can turn into something so big that it can destroy you. And then today, I just focus on building a relationship with God. God is what keeps me honest with myself. Yeah. Taking the next right action. Being able to be open and have someone to talk to. Yeah. In a private setting to where I feel vulnerable Mm -hmm. and safe. And I kind of want to acknowledge, especially for people who are in early recovery or just 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 checking it out. That God word is scary in the beginning because I hadn't had any relationship with God. I didn't even think I believed in one. It would turn me off and it did several times in my life. And um the truth is, it is the only thing I need. And I I couldn't I couldn't understand that because I was so closed. But, you know, I I didn't it didn't come all at once. The steps helped me build that relationship. And we have to also remember, this is a spiritual program, not a religious one. So if that's how you find your God in a religion, that's perfectly fine. But it, it's all up to you. It's your own journey, your own pathway to God. And that is whatever that looks like to you. It's your conception. And it's going to change a lot. I yeah. mean, mine's completely different than when I first got mm-hmm. sober. Yeah. Because that's what the steps are for. They help you build a relationship because obviously what you're doing isn't working. You don't have power or control over your life, over your addiction. Something else is there to help you. Yeah. And when you when you accept that, then you can surrender and you, you're never alone again because you always have that presence with you. It's really powerful. Speaking of God, next episode, we're going to be discussing step two, which is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. So we're going to be discussing hope and open mindedness. It'll be good. And we're going to talk about the insanity and there's going to be some funny stories. Well, they're funny now because we're not in it. But yeah, it's going to be it's going to be a lot of stuff. And before we wrap up, we want you to know that if you're struggling with step one or the process of becoming self-aware, we've shared our experiences with the intention of opening your eyes to what powerlessness and unmanageability can look like. We want you to know that you're not alone on this journey. We've been there and we understand the challenges and doubts that may arise. Remember, every small step towards honesty and acceptance matters. And there's a supportive community here ready to walk beside you. You've got this. You are not alone. Never forget that. And if you would like to share your stories with us, you can email us at recoverymicdrop at gmail.com. And you can go follow our Facebook page at Recovery Mic Drop. Hope to see you there and see you next time. Yep. Bye.